Hello and welcome to the Dinosaur Man News and Reviews. I'm Andy Hughes. I'm here with Alex Hudson. Yeah, that's right. I'm back. Oh, you better believe it. You've well, been back for yeah, I was back last ages. Week as well, yeah. In fairness, you've been you've been back for more time than you haven't. Yeah, but I'm back for news and reviews because obviously last mm. time you had to go solo. Mm. And I only watched Solo, a Star Wars story, and Free Solo. <laughs> One film you really liked, one film, oh no. Yeah, Solo Star Wars Story is an underrated masterpiece, we all know that. It's maybe the finest of the new Star Wars. When's that getting its sequel? Oh, I don't think it's going to. When's, when are we getting Chewy? Chewy, a Star Wars story. We kind of got it in this, but I want to know before that. Although, of course, then you've got like all the other characters. Hasn't a lot of his story been told, though, throughout the other films? You Chewy. tell me, Star Wars nerd. Chewy. Yeah, Chewbacca hasn't he still oh, been told? I mean, he turns up in the prequels, and you're pretty sure that they, that was never intended. But whatever. Uh, yeah, I guess so. I would say you would know more than I do because remember, that's the, that's the extent of my knowledge. He turns I've, up in the in the prequels. I know that. I've much. never seen a Star Wars. Remember you've that. never seen Star. You've seen all of the Star Wars now. I I've think. I've seen none of them. You've definitely seen all of them. What is this Star Wars? Is it okay. Live Long and Prosper? Okay. Is it Live Long and Prosper? Who knows? Live short and not prosper? Just, just poke poke the bears. What <laughs> bears? The the fans who are like, you know it's not Nash. Matt. <laughs> you mean Matt? <laughs> Matt knows that I know Star Wars. Yeah. The thing is... The only thing you're doing is agitating, I guess, no one. Because mm-hmm. he's not getting annoyed by that because he always finds it funny when we get things wrong because he knows that he knows more than us about... Yeah, because about. We, we're always purposely getting things wrong. If ever we get something wrong, know that we meant it. Mm. If I ever have to like review a thing from pop culture, you know, like a Transformers or something like mm. that, I know that he's going to hate that review. <laughs> He'll be like, you got it wrong. Megatron doesn't do that. The Acropolis doesn't do that. What was the planet? It's, um... It's not called Acropolis, is it? No. Acropolis isn't that dark side. Is, no, I think that was Apocalypse. Apocalypse. Um, what is the name of the giant? It's, um... Mm. Transformable guy. Wow. It's fine. Galvat- not Galvatron, that's another one. Galvatron. Galvatron. Isn't that something you take when you've got indigestion? <laughs> Galvatron. Yeah, he was. He was the one. I'm pretty sure. In, I don't know how well you remember Transformers films. I've seen one. He turns into like. Cubes, I fell asleep in it. And they become like these floating cubes that can transform. Cubes. Yeah, like little cubes. Okay. Is he a cube? No, he's a robot. <laughs> Okay, but he's not like a cuboid Basically, robot. because they try cloning... Unicron. Unicron is the planet, yes. They try cloning Megatron, right? Mm. And instead they... Who cl- tried? Government. Unicron. The baddies. Yeah, then the government... The good American... The good government. The good American There's government. There's no good right? government, is there? Michael Bay taught me that the American government are the... Are They're the, the real team. heroes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, they try cloning Megatron. Sure. And they create Galvatron, who is an even worse villain, mm. um, because science goes bad. Mm. Maybe one day I'll do you a 
um, potted guide of all of the Transformers films. Last year, uh, last year, last week was bad enough. I don't want to go through a series that is shit. Well, I tried so hard. I mean, is you know, there's a lot of information to take in for Fast and Furious. <laughs> there's going to be more that I don't care about for, and that isn't to say that Transformers can't be good. I'm sure it could be. I mean, they've announced the next Bumblebee one is- was good. Oh, good segue. Next one is going to be. Uh, Beast Wars. Okay. The Beast Tell Wars. me about Beast Wars. What's going to go on? Beast there? Wars were. I loved Beast Wars. Okay. Um, because they were just like, here is a cheetah, but it's also mm. a robot. Yeah, this is just Manimal. <laughs> the TV show Manimal. <laughs> Except they're robots. I think you might be the only person who ever saw Manimal. Uh, also, you, I think a lot of people saw Manimal. You do a lot of the heavy lifting for the Manimal mentions on Let's anything. See. Manimal viewership. Um, but yeah, there was like a cheetah one, there was a gorilla one. Mm hmm. Um, and I can't even remember why they were animals. I'm guessing because they landed in a time where vehicles didn't exist. Mm-hmm. So they went, oh, we'll just become animals. But I had like all the toys and stuff. Yeah. But they said that they're going to do it in um, the next film. So I'm guessing this is the next mainline Transformers entry. Mm. You found the viewing figures, haven't you? Well, what's interesting is Manimal. American action adventure television series created by Glenn A. Larson and Ron, uh, Donald Ah, Boyle. Mm. It ran on NBC from September the 30th to December the 17th, 1983. It was one year. <laughs> and you remember it so well. Why do I remember this TV show that you was on born. before I was born? <laughs> Premiered as a 90-minute pilot. Okay, so... Mm. Ended as a 90-minute pilot. <laughs> so, Dr. Jonathan Chase, wealthy, young, handsome, a man with the brightest of futures, a so man with saw, the darkest of paths. You saw a lot of yourself in this man, yeah? <laughs> From Africa's deepest recesses to the rare field peaks of Tibet, heir to his family's, uh, to his father's legacy and to the world's darkest mysteries, Jonathan Chase, master of the secrets that divide man from animal, animal from man. Manimal! <laughs> that was the opening narration. Oh, amazing. Oh, okay. So, I guess, yeah, the plot is... Ian, a man and an animal? A sh- yeah, he's a shape-shifting man who can turn, turn himself to any animal he chooses. Any animal? Yeah, and like I think he uses it to try and have sex with a woman because it's the 80s and that's kind of what things were in those days. Um, so, yeah. But yeah, so they're putting Beast Wars basically within Transformers, mm. which I would be like, oh, that's pretty cool and exciting if mm. we hadn't already had this entire situation with the Dinobots where they went, oh, we're going to put those in and then never use them properly. The composer for Manimal for yeah. the series other than the pilot, but for everything else in the series, Alan Silvestri. Okay. So, before you start shitting on Manimal, think twice, little fuck. <laughs> Everyone has the laws in their career. It says here, Silvestri describes this as his greatest achievement. <laughs> he says... Avengers is basically a riff on Manimal. <laughs> I agree with him. Um, and the transformation sequences were designed and created by Stan Winston. So that's that's good people involved in this. I should probably watch this series again. Well, I don't think I've ever seen it. There's eight episodes. How do I know this thing? <laughs> you talk about Manimal so often. I know, and I don't think I've ever seen an episode. Sounds uh, good though. Contains an animal. He's a manimal. He's like animorphs, yeah? This predates animorphs by a million years. Yeah, but more people have seen animorphs. Uh, I haven't seen either of them. <laughs> I've seen one of them. Which one's animorphs? Teenagers can turn into animals. 
Oh, come not on. Not to be confused. This not guy was a teenager before, and now he's a man. Not to be confused. Animal. Not to be confused with big, bad beetle borgs. Okay. Well, we all know the greatest thing, uh, of course, is the tribe. <laughs> My sister loved the tribe. Yeah? Like, was obsessed with it. Like, it was on. So it was on, like, every Sunday, I think. This is a loose episode, isn't it? And each episode was, I think, four hours long. Mm. But there's something about the tribe that, like gave me a headache mm. and made me feel like numb in my head mm-hmm. and I don't know what it was but it was like almost like my body was physically reacting with pain whenever the tribe was on mm. uh, well the tribe had so many episodes 260 episodes yeah. I think I've seen them all what the fuck <laughs> so the tribe was like it was on Channel 5 here. I yeah, it was it's... a New Zealand, yeah. United Kingdom co-venture. And basically um, about like a load of teenagers who live in like this dystopian wasteland. Um, and they have to try and kind of get by a knife. Um, I hated so it. So many episodes. Manimal knew that it could get it all done in eight. <laughs> <laughs> I got to the end of the eight and went, what do we do now? I oh, know, he's turned into a shark. I think we've done it. The weirdly, composer Alan Silvestri <laughs> says, still better than Avengers. <laughs> Crazy. Welcome to the episode, though, guys, of the podcast. The only yeah, I guess podcast. at this point, welcome. If you're still here, thank you and welcome. The only podcast in the world that talks news and reviews. Yes. This week, focusing on movie news and reviews. Yeah. Although mainly on reviews. Yeah. Um, we've kind true. of done the news that we were going to talk about when I talked about Beast Wars. Um, <laughs> but before we get to that was this, token news just for Matt. It was because you've seen a lot of stuff. Like, so mm. for those who aren't um, au fait with sports, the European Championships are on at the moment um, in football. Yeah. Um, which means there's been a game like every single, like three games every single day. Uh, I think we can all agree that's too many and I watched them all (laughs) and the problem is when you watch them all it means with a game on at like 5 o'clock and a game on at 8 o'clock time to watch movies is limited Mm. so I've seen little yeah because I've been watching a lot of sport Mm -hmm. I still Um, feel like I've seen quite a lot of the football I've seen more than I would have thought (laughs) so you've done a lot of the heavy lifting again Uh, but I did see something so that's fine um, I mean, if you want, you can do a quick minute on Raya and your problems with the film. I think the, Raya the problem has a, is don't trust anyone. Raya has a bad message. Okay, Raya and the Last Dragon looks pretty uh-huh. uh, because it's Disney animation. It's uh-huh. great, and it's great to see kind of representation on screen and all that kind of stuff. And that looks great and but, it's really great. But the message at the heart of the film is stupid because it's telling you to trust people, even though they have repeatedly screwed you over. But it's. When would you ever trust anybody ever again? We we will never agree on this because my interpretation is change is possible even in the most hopeless of causes. Yeah, and my thought process is if you reach out to somebody six times and they keep stabbing you in the front, maybe it's time to stop reaching out. And it's kind of like, oh, I keep reaching out and I keep ending up with a knife in my chest. Maybe the answer is stop reaching out. Okay. Did you want to discuss any of the trailers this week or um, no? Barrett also watched Ryan and the Last Dragon and hated it, so... Yeah. But yeah, but he hated it for a different reason. <laughs> he he thought, thought it was, it was just boring. He called it a snooze fest. Yeah. Um, obviously, 
normally we would have movie news. Yeah. But first we go and talk about gaming news. But of course there was no video game news in the last two weeks. I got a little bit of gaming news. No, you haven't. What the fuck is this? If anyone's going to do it, I do it and I don't want to do it. Okay, fine. Do you want me to give you my gaming news? Okay. Is Remedy Entertainment. I love the fact that you created a game called Control and it's great, but stop putting bugs in it so it keeps crashing. I hate having to do the same level four times. Does it put them in automatically? I don't Is know. it supposed to have bugs? Well, I don't think any game's supposed to have bugs, but it's really annoying me. Mm, yeah, well. I really like the game. I really enjoy it. Mm. And I'm having a lot of fun with it. But I got really far yesterday and I almost got to a save point, I think, and then it crashed on me and now I have mm. to do that whole thing again. Yeah. I feel like it's kind of trying to be a second sight, and I like second sight better. I, I, I know this isn't the video gaming episode where we would normally talk about this, but I am really enjoying the kind mm-hmm. of atmosphere and everything that it has going on for it. And I think the combat's really good, and I'm really enjoying it. Um, it's got a few really annoying bugs, and there's one actor in it who's terrible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's very acty, the whole thing. Like, it's got a lot of actors in it. And kind of doing performances, and one of them is just really bad, and seeing as one of the core points of the game, it's not great. Um, but yeah. But your rating? Really enjoying it. Like, um, how many Mandalorian hats out of chicken <laughs> nuggets? Sixteen Mandalorian hats out of four chicken nuggets. It's probably the best review that film that game's ever had. Put that on your poster. <laughs> um, For your two-year-old game. Trailers. Yeah. And um, what trailers have we actually seen? We saw Snake Eyes just now. I like that trailer. Like, he's, I, like he's still got his face out. So yeah, Snake Eyes is obviously the origin story of the character. Um, the well, it's called Snake Eyes GI Joe Origins, yeah. which is very funny to me. It sounds like the stupidest title, and I will not see this film of the character Snake Eyes, yeah. who is a guy who is silent and wears a mask. We talked about this last time, mm-hmm. and in this, you got very handsome Henry Golding mm-hmm. talking a lot. With his face out. Um, mm-hmm. Face so, out. I did think in this, like, if by the end of this film, good like, face off let's reference. say this is really good, like, it's really successful. Yeah. And at the end of the film, you're like, oh, this is how he gets his mask and decides to stop talking. Mm. It's like, yeah, but you're going to have to make a sequel now. And everybody's not going to be in a mask. No, because they'll do G.I. Joe Origins for a baddie. For Cobra. Mm-hmm. Cobra Commander. Um, Metal face. But yeah, I think it looks, it could be fun. Like, it could be fun. It looks very generic to me, but I'm yeah. sure it's not. I'm sure it'll be brilliant. It's very. It's got every chance of falling into just a okay. That was fine, mm-hmm. and I think you're allowed those films. Yeah, yeah. Not every film has to be incredible. No, I, I know. I've seen a lot of them, and most yeah. of them aren't. Like it's it's okay to have. I've, I've seen my list fun. this year. Don't worry. Um, well. <laughs> there's a good there's a good chunk of stuff I'm going to talk about today that isn't actually. You know what? No. This week, good week. Well, spoiler alert. Spoiler alert for what people are about to hear in like 10 minutes. Um, what else did we see? 10 minutes is very <laughs> ambitious. <laughs> um, what else have we seen? We've seen trailer for Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. Um, really like the look of this film. I haven't seen this trailer, so um, full disclosure. It's very much a case of showing us a bit more of the kind of style of this film. Mm. And it definitely has a bit more of that kind of idea of this is a martial arts kind of Eastern influence. I've been told there's a Mortal Kombat tournament in it. Yes, there is. And it seems to look like... So at the end, Abomination appears at the end. Mm. Um, and he seems to be fighting Wong. Mm. Or at least somebody who... Look, it's definitely somebody with like the Doctor Strange kind of Wong powers. Mm-hmm. Um, and it looks like it might be Benedict Wong. Mm. 
But I don't know, because you only see him from the back. What if this is the Mortal Kombat tie-in that no one knew they wanted? Oh, great. But yeah, um, I also really like the idea that they've kind of taken the Ten Rings into be these kind of more physical beings that kind of go up the arms and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. It looks different, and that's exciting, but it could also just absolutely develop into something that is generic Marvel. Yeah. And, you know, I'm saying this as somebody who... I enjoy generic Marvel. Mm-hmm. Um but I'm kind of hoping this is what I think it is, which is it's going to explore kind of a style of cinema that maybe you don't see as often in big Hollywood movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, look, Destin Daniel Cretton, great director, really like Short Term 12. Maybe this will be good. I won't see it, but <laughs> maybe it'll be good. Um, but you're going to report on it for us, so that's fine. It's fine. we got a correspondent. It's you. We had the Candyman trailer. Candyman trailer. So this is the second trailer. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess technically third because the first one was that all animated one from like January yes, to which I really like that trailer, which is great. Uh, this one blends in a bit of that alongside some actual footage of the film as well. Mm-hmm. The footage, uh, a lot of the footage we'd seen in the previous trailer, um, but I think this one gives you more of an idea of the tone the film's going yeah. for, which I think is good. Uh, it looks interesting to me i think um i rewatched Candyman recently and i i'm i'm kind of intrigued about the way they're going to develop that idea and continue the uh the sort of message of that first film mm-hmm. um and which is don't say his name three times well it, it's five but don't worry about that um Oh, oh no! Um, no, That's but why the, never came. the the whole sort of idea of looking at you know um, the the idea of obviously there's a big sort of social justice thing throughout the first film, and then there's people who take on this Candyman identity as being you know that's how they rule and that's how they um, inspire fear in the people around them, and then taking that away what does that do to the legend if you if you remove some of the mystery to it um Mm. but yeah i really like the look of this film it's got a great cast Nia costa looks like she's doing some very interesting stuff and i think i'd be interested to see what she's going to end up doing with this because i think looks scary yes well it's a it's a spooky horror movie i think the the big the big benefit, I think, to the first Candyman was that alongside the quite... I mean, there's quite a lot of gore in that movie. But alongside it, it's a film that isn't trying to jump scare you into mm. screams. But it's it's an ideas film. There's, there's stuff behind it other than the gore. Um, it's my kind of thing. So, yeah. you know, I'm very much in on this i will allow you to watch it and report back whether i should yeah it might be too spooky to watch in the cinema but you might watch it on home release at through my fingers uh what other trailers did we have halloween halloween kills uh so this is the sequel to 2018's halloween which was a sequel to technically just the first halloween Mm -hmm. so this is technically halloween 3 not season of the witch though guys for all you (laughs) halloween heads out there for you pumpkin heads not to be confused with the Stan Winston film Pumpkinhead, of course, of course. Um, Stan Winston getting a lot of mention on this podcast. It's a, it's not a great movie, but it's an interesting character design. It's a lot like the Xenomorph, actually. Anyway, um, so 
Halloween Kills picks up immediately after the events of Halloween. Uh, and I believe Halloween Ends is supposed to be doing the same thing yeah. for this film. So it's telling that story basically real time from what I can see. You know, it's going to be like a six hour movie. Um, I really liked Halloween 2018. Yes. I think it reinvigorated a series that's had a lot of downs and not very many ups. Um, and I think it managed to modernize the story in terms of the way it was approaching it. I think, you know, it gave mm. a lot, it gave mainstream horror fans a lot of what they knew and expected from horror movies of recent years, as well as sort of trying to retain a bit of the original in terms of its tone. Yeah. Uh, this one looks like, in the same way that Halloween 2 sort of upped everything and went a little bit kind of crazy go nuts, this looks like it's doing the same yeah, thing. Yeah, it's very much kind of, oh, what, have you killed lots of people? Because mm. I don't know I don't know what the kill count is in that first, like, the Halloween film from 2018. Like, I don't seem to think it was all too high. Yeah, maybe like seven or eight people. But in this trailer alone, I'm pretty sure we see like 10, 15 people go. Mm. Um, and obviously then they've got to have more than that to kind of keep it interesting. Um, yeah, it seems very much like, oh, bigger is better. Yeah. And I'm concerned, does that lose some of its effect? Well, it depends. I think it maybe changes the dynamic, but maybe that's the, the thing you need because... To keep it fresh. Yeah, if you just make the same film again, mm-hmm. are people going to be interested in that? True. And how well can you keep the tension going? Apparently 17 kills in the first uh, in 2018's Halloween. You did good. Um, so, yeah, that's coming out. So that's October this year. Yeah. And um, Candyman was end of August. Shang-Chi, September. Beginning of September, end of August. Uh, yeah, I think it's that long weekend. And Snake Eyes um, is end of next month, I think. Oh, is it that soon? I think so. I think it's okay. soon. Cool. Um, do we have any others to talk about? Not really, I don't think. So. No, if you, Turner and Hooch is having a Disney Plus series, and Tom Hanks is dead in it, and I don't like the fact that's canon. Mm. I mean, not Tom Hanks is dead, but his character is dead. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we're presuming anyway, because we're going to have to presume that... Well, they said, oh, your dad says he's like the original Hooch, which means his dad had Hooch. Yeah, maybe he just knew and the original they... Hooch. He saw him in the street once. He was like, whoa, that cool dog. And then they say, oh, yeah, your dad's dead. Mm. I don't think they say it exactly like that, but... No, I think they're, they're a bit more tactful than that. Um, well, you know, good for Disney+, Plus, I guess. Maybe I was on board. You're going to be watching that for us? I was on board with it until I found out. (laughs) Uh, Right, should we move on to reviews then? Yeah. Uh, So, first of all, brand new segment that you've not been present for before. No, you were. Loki Lowdown. (laughs) Okay, uh, the Lowdown on Loki. Loving the Uh, consistently (laughs) fantastic. More confident when you are here, weirdly. Um, Yeah, so Loki Lowdown. So, since I last reported, first of all, I spoke about the pilot. Yeah. Pilot. The first episode, it's not a pilot. They're not going to be like, mm, if this runs, maybe it will be picked up for a full <laughs> series. They made the series. It cost $200 million or whatever. So, first episode, I'd reported on and said, mm. it felt very placeholder Marvel. It felt like it was just sort of treading water until the next thing. And we weren't particularly... Well, I hadn't been particularly gripped by it other yeah. than good production design, good score. 
And Owen Wilson. And Owen Wilson's fun. And he is. And I think yeah. he is because he feels like he doesn't belong in that series. And then you said, I'm not going to watch any more of this, but now you've seen the first three. I don't remember you've saying that I wasn't going to watch any more. Oh, no, I did. Because I you convinced me to watch the second one because you said, second episode, much better. So, yeah, first episode, I was a bit cold on this. Mm. Um, it's it was lot, a lot of place setting. A whole lot of exposition. A lot of kind of like, oh, this this entire concept now exists of people who kind of manage the timeline time's a huge thing to introduce yeah it is and it's like oh we've got to take a lot of time to kind of introduce these people who make sure that the um primary timeline is kept safe yes and it felt like a whole lot of plodding stuff and there's some really nice character moments in there for loki Mm -hmm. as well um but yeah it was mainly a thing of just being like okay this looks great it sounds great and there's owen wilson Mm mm-hmm the second episode, I absolutely adore. I think it's really good. Um, it has a lot less of that stuff because it's done a lot of that in the first one. It allows us to kind of play with Loki a bit more um, because, you know, he is our lead. His interaction with Owen Wilson's Morbius is still really good. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think, like, the cinematography and I think at the end of that episode is fantastic. Yeah. Like, the entire set piece that's in, like, the kind of future... Um, shopping center mm-hmm. um i adored it i thought it was fantastic mm. and then the third episode which is the one we just had yes i don't know what i think about it like i thought it's fine mm. it has moments but i think we spoke about this where we said it's very much like somebody's gone i want to do a doctor who episode mm-hmm. how do we do that oh we got loki let's do it with him yeah um i don't know like also, there's certain things in that episode as well where you can tell this is on a sound stage. Yeah. Like, it doesn't seem real. Mm-hmm. Um, like, there's a bit at the end where they're running through a town and you can see them just running from edge to edge of the set. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just seems really fake. Yeah. Um, and I, de- I didn't get that from, like, any of the others. Mm. And I don't know whether, you know, this is space, you know, WandaVision was set in a real place. Yeah, it's so much harder to do a realistic sound, because even though I'm pretty sure that WandaVision was also filmed on, well, that was filmed partially on an actual stage Mm. in front of a live studio audience, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Or like like it would have been, but then it was also partially, like the exterior stuff was all filmed on a green screen thing, I think. Yeah, and I know this is using that volume stage that Disney have. The Mandalorian thing. Yeah, Yeah, which, you know, incredible piece of technology like mm. i've seen so much about it now and the technology they use is just it's so incredible um but once you know about it and you spot that stuff it looks really bad when it's used badly and the thing is we know that it can't be a case of oh it's in space so therefore um it's hard to do yeah because the mandalorian does it so well mm. like the mandalorian seems real I think the problem is you've uh, that particularly that planet that they're on is more spacey than Mm. any planet in the Mandalorian true because the thing about Star Wars is always that it was always grounded in all of these planets look a bit like an existing thing on Earth and this is supposed to look entirely unlike anything on Earth and it does for the most part in that it doesn't look right Mm. And it feels fake because it looks fake. And that's the... I think the problem is when you've spent that much of a budget on 
the whole series and then this one episode is entirely set on this planet and you don't ever feel like you've actually nailed what you're supposed yeah. to be doing with it i mean if if the idea was to go with a doctor who episode vibe for that then they absolutely did nail it mm-hmm. because it feels like hey this is what happens if doctor who's got disney money behind it yeah. but i don't think that makes it interesting my my issue is this it's a six episode run Mm-hmm. By now, halfway through the series, you really should have grabbed me. That episode definitely felt like it was treading water. Mm-hmm. And for a six-episode run, like I don't think any of the episodes should. Mm-hmm. I think every episode should feel like it's doing it's, something. It's at least progressing stuff. And I saw people say, like, oh, maybe it's going to be one of those that like, something's going to happen in the fourth episode, which will make you go, oh, now the third one makes it so much more sense, but... I mean, I'm fully, I'm fully of the opinion that the fourth episode is going to be much better than mm-hmm. that episode. But I now will not watch that fourth episode. Yeah, don't get me wrong. I'm enjoying this. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really like Tom Hiddleston. I, not too keen on Sylvie. Mm. Like the performance of it, I'm not overly sold on it. Mm-hmm. Um, it almost seems like somebody trying to ape what kind of Hemsworth and Hiddleston have done with the Asgardians. Yeah. Um. And I don't know how much it really kind of vibes. Mm. Um, yeah, I think this is so far as the one I'm enjoying the least out of these Marvel shows. Mm-hmm. Um, I know some people who are absolutely adoring this and are loving every moment of it. Yeah. And I think there are definite moments in it um, because I think there always will be for me. And there'll always be at least something in like an episode where I'll go, okay, that's fine. But, yeah. But yeah, it's, it's almost like it's kind of going up down up down at the moment yeah i mean the thing like i was having this conversation with my brother the other day about the series and he was saying that he felt similarly about it in terms of that third episode just completely derailing any of the good stuff that the first the second one had done yeah and then he said something to me that made me think uh the problem is i don't know if i am back out on this yet (laughs) is that richard e grant is still yet to appear yes he is and i'd be in on that (laughs) but the problem is, I'm kind of like, uh, I'm halfway through. It hasn't grabbed me. You've just reminded me that someone I really like is going to turn up mm. probably in the next episode or two. And is that enough to bring me back in? Probably not. But I know for a fact that I will now watch all six yeah. of them because I'll probably end up just going, oh, well, I want to see what he does or what he actually ends up being because that's been kept a closely guarded mm-hmm. secret. So I was kind of like, I was, you know... Just when I thought I was out, they pulled me back in. Um, but, you know, I, the whole vibe of the series, I'm not sold on. Yeah, I think there's moments and there's stuff I like. And I suppose, in a way, it's interesting because playing through Control, mm. right, That the vibe of the Bureau and Control mm-hmm. is quite similar to the TVA. Right. Of this kind of like, oh, it is a um, kind of almost like, Here's an office, kind of federal government, yeah, kind of building, but also isn't it a bit weird? Mm. Um, and control is doing it really well. Mm. Um, and for me, I'm really interested in the bureau, but also I kind of go, but how do you show that in an interesting way? Yeah, like the beauty of what control's doing is what it does a lot of is you've got this game that works, and then um it's got all these collectibles that you can pick up and each thing you can pick up, you can read and it gives you more information about kind of how it all works and what it all means. Mm. So it's up to you if you want that extra information. 
Yeah. And you can't do that in a series because as soon as you start exposition dumping, it becomes the first episode again, which for me was a bit of a slog. Yeah. It's a that do pig as a series for me at the moment. Mm. Um, I'm really hoping it kind of kicks into like the second half. Mm-hmm. Um, it may I well really do. Like that. I would guess it would. Yeah. It's, it feels like if it's going to do something, it's really got to ramp it up in the second half mm-hmm. of the series because, like you say, in a short run like that, everything, like you should, you would expect everything to be functioning towards the end game and presumably it is but we just don't know that yet i guess mm-hmm. i don't know um do you want to talk some stuff that you've seen yes i'll do actual reviews now because um we're not got modoc minute this week sorry guys you've got the ones. first episode done that was it right i did see two of them okay I can't remember which one. Did you speak about both the episodes? Yeah, maybe. I can't remember okay. what happened. Oh, no, I do. second one's quite fun, actually. Okay. Carry on. <laughs> um, well, tune in next uh, News and Reviews this for... This won't be another giddy Maybe the whole series of Modoc Minute, I guess. Um, so, I'll start with Stray, which is a really interesting documentary. Um, this is directed by Elizabeth Lowe. Um, I th- pretty much, you know, a one-woman team in terms mm-hmm. of what she was doing here. So... Um, the story basically revolves around it's, it follows a trio of street dogs in Istanbul where it's illegal to um to either um capture or to uh kill mm. these these wild dogs these strays um and we follow a trio of these dogs. Normally, there's a main character, Zaytan, um, who basically run around this city and sort of live their lives in amongst the people. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really fascinating, the fact that it's it's a documentary that feels like it's you know it's clearly not just about the dogs and yet it is entirely about the dogs mm. so the there there is a sort of a side story that we keep dipping in and out of throughout the film whenever zayton goes and uh, and gets close to these children again and there are some um refugees that they that spend a lot of time with the dogs and their storyline is sort of entwined with Zaytin's in terms of we dip in and out and we see their progress from being sort of um, just out on the streets and being kicked out of places they're staying and having to find ways to survive and ways to live on the streets. And that mirrors those dogs and it mirrors sort of that. Um, And there is this really genuinely touching um, connection between the refugees and these dogs in that they both sort of feel like they are i don't know not not necessarily excluded from things but certainly feel like they are observers in a city that isn't fully aware of their existence Mm. and i think there's something to that now and like i say the film is about that but it's also very much a film about three dogs and you you do see the fact that these dogs are so sort of part of the city that they are you know that they're invading every corner of the streets and they are just you know they're getting so close to people who have a very personal and intimate conversations and you you know 
while they were filming, they didn't know what they were picking up from these conversations because they were just following the dogs. Yeah. And then when they got the translations in, they realized they were getting some quite in-depth and some quite sort of personal conversations were going on with these dogs around. But because it's just these dogs that they're following, no one pays any attention to the dogs and they keep on having these conversations as if no one was there. So you get this kind of window into these mm-hmm. personal lives of all these citizens of Istanbul, as well as the fact that you're following these dogs. And I think that's really, I, for for a film that is ostensibly a film where you are following, I mean, the camera work is incredible because you're yeah. seeing it from their level pretty much all of the time. And I think there's there's something to be said for the fact that they've managed to pull off a documentary that feels like it's, it's entirely about the dogs and that's never lost. But it's also about much more than that. And it's about humanity and what we do and, and how we connect with people and how we connect with other human beings and how we connect with other hu- um, uh, any other beings as well. Mm-hmm. And I think it's it's really remarkable. So it's available to rent now. I'm presuming it'll be getting a purchase. Um, I think, it, it, in fact, it might be available to purchase as well. Um, but it is available pretty much everywhere, I think, on digital platforms. So I would recommend you check that out. It's called, it's called Stray. Um, I would recommend, yeah. Nice. Uh, next up, The Amusement Park. Um, so here's a film that um, technically counts as a 2021 release mm-hmm. because this is the first time it's been released on any kind of... Uh, it had a festival uh, circuit in 2019 and then was released officially this year through Shudder. Um so it was produced in 1973 by George A. Romero. Okay. Um, I know that name. Yeah. Um, so it was in between him working on Season of the Witch and The Crazies. Um, so the amusement park was basically... George A. Romero was recruited by um, the Lutheran Service Society of Western Pennsylvania. And it was supposed to be a sort of educational film, a sort of public service announcement type mm. film about ageism. Um, and it's really interesting, a really interesting piece of work that I, I I enjoyed a hell of a lot more than I thought I would in terms of it being, I mean, it is what would happen if George A. Romero was commissioned by a church to make (laughs) a educational film because it feels surreal and horrifying. There are a lot of sort of horrifying things that happen within it that make you feel like maybe this is his sort of most terrifying work in terms of what he's doing. It's really, it was, so yeah, I'm just reading here. It was shot over three days. um, And it basically follows this old guy who walks around an amusement park Mm -hmm. and experiences various different things happening that are sort of reflective of ageism within society. And throughout the course of the film, there is this sort of madness that sets in. Yeah. That sort of envelops the whole thing. It's such a strange movie. And I, this is not a movie that will be for everyone. I'll guarantee that. But I'd say that if you are a George A. Romero fan and you are looking for some, you know, particularly if you're, I mean, if you're a completionist, you probably will have seen this by this point. But if you're a George A. Romero fan or someone who's just interested in sort of surreal horror Mm -hmm. this weirdly this ended up ticking a lot of boxes for me that i thought i really didn't expect this to be you know it's like 53 minutes long yeah 
and it's just it's got some weird imagery in it it's got a lot of it's got a very unsettling feel to a lot of it in the same way to something like um so certain sections of yellow submarine for instance mm-hmm. are really bizarre and also oddly horrifying at yeah, the same yeah. time and it's got a little bit of that to it in the same way that something like Monty Python sometimes has something that's not quite right and okay. it kind of feels it really it really hit the spot for me and I, I think if you're someone who's looking for something a bit off the beaten path then this is going to scratch that itch weirdly but it is exactly the kind of film that you could imagine George A. Romero was like well you've hired me to make a movie I'll make the movie and this was the result and it's like ooh this is probably not what they were expecting. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, re- really interesting. Uh, and I'm, you know, delighted it's come out, but um, it is, yeah, it is bizarre. Sounds interesting. Yeah. It sounds like it's probably not for me, but. No, maybe not. But I mean, interestingly, um, this actually ties into the next film I'll talk about. Interestingly, I think it does a better job of capturing the aging experience combined with sort of declining mental faculties better than the father. Yeah. I didn't expect that to be the case. <laughs> you know, it's it's a very mm. strange thing that that's, you know, this is a much lauded film that's, you know, one I'd recommend if you're a fan of, yeah. you know, if you know what you're wanting, then go and see it. If you're kind of intrigued by it, I'd say probably watch it anyway because it's only 52 minutes of your life, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, so yeah, The Father, this is uh, directed, co-written by Florian Zeller, adapted from his stage play of the same name, or Le Père in French. Fancy. I'm cultured. Um, so starring Anthony Hopkins, award winner mm-hmm. for this film. Uh, Olivia Coleman, award winner for another film. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, you know, good pedigree. Uh, but, you know, good cast. Uh, Mark Gatiss, uh, Imogen Poots, Rufus Sewell, Olivia Williams. It, you know... A very solid cast here. Um, so this is the story of a man who is suffering from dementia and um, sort of follows him as he tries to campaign for his freedom and to not be put in a home and not to be, you know, not to have his life uprooted just because he's suffering from dementia because... He insists, you know, well, you know, I'm fine and everything's fine and I'm still managing, so why would you want to try and put me in a home or move me in with you? Or, you know, I don't see why you're making such a fuss over yeah. this and I'm steadfastly, you know, he, he's someone who's steadfastly determined to stay in his flat. Um, And it's an interesting film. I mean... it's a, So, Anthony Hopkins' performance... Is a very committed performance. I feel like it's a very showy performance. And I don't think that the film ever escapes the fact that it's come from the stage mm-hmm. in the same way that something like Fences did when I watched it. And I know you felt the same yeah. about Fences. Or something like Ma Rainey's more recently, where you're watching it and you're going, okay, I can tell. And the problem is it never really escapes from that. And the performance is a big, showy performance. And it feels like that performance would be at home on the stage. Yeah. And yet on film, it left me completely cold emotionally. 
and I was wondering if there was a reason behind that or if I could sort of pinpoint it. And I don't really think that I can other than the fact that stories about dementia and about Alzheimer's are entirely personal mm. and entirely personal to your own experience. And this, if, you know, I I will trust that this is Florian Zeller's experience of that disease. Yeah. Because there is there is clearly something behind that where you can tell that this is the film that he wanted to make. And if if you know if that's the case, then fine, and I can accept that perfectly. For me, it didn't hit on an emotional level that I thought it might. Mm. And I was entirely surprised by that fact. Yeah. And I went with my brother and we went on Father's Day, which was a pretty I mean, in terms of our experience with dementia that was that kind of felt like it was um a cauldron of <laughs> various different things all coming together to form this per- perfect melting pot of yeah I'll be absolutely devastated by this film and I thought yeah. you know coming out of it I was thinking I'm not and I don't know why it is and I think the, the positives to the film are this. I mean, I really like this. The production design of this film is really interesting. And the way they actually, the way they use the set is really good. And I think is genius in terms of the way they deal with that. So that's great. And I really like that stuff. And I think the performances, you know, they're all committed performances, And I think they're all good performances in their own rights. It's just that Hopkins feels very showy and yeah. very sort of, over the top almost whereas everyone else and again it speaks to that person experience because people who suffer from this go through various different things and it may well be that that was the experience that florian zeller had mm. with this so you know perfectly within their rights to to play it however they want because this is clearly the film he wanted to make but i was surprised that i didn't feel anything yeah, and I think that's the interesting thing is that I I sat there for the whole thing and I thought any minute now I'm going to start weeping or it's going to really do something that grabs me and goes this is reminiscent of your experience or and there were things in it that were rep- reminiscent of our experience but at the same time there wasn't enough it never felt like it was authentic enough to my and that's the thing is I keep coming yeah. back to it's probably on a personal level. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's a that'll do pick. But I would say that if anyone's looking at it and going, oh, I'm really interested in seeing that film because, I, it, you know, particularly if you've gone through, if you've had any personal experience with dealing with dementia, I think a great way to sort of help compartmentalize and deal with that and allow you to process that can be to see those stories told on yeah, film. absolutely. And if you're interested in it, I think this is something that you need to go in and have a look and say, right, you know, go in with an open mind and say, you know, I'm quite happy to watch this and see if this matches up to my experience or if I feel like I can connect to anything within here. And the thing I kept coming back to was Relic from last year Mm -hmm. did that for me in the way that I expected this to do it for me. And this never did. Relic for me is the pinnacle of that. Yeah. And I would still encourage people to watch Relic because I think that's a phenomenal film that uses the language of horror cinema to tell a story that is more grounded in reality than you would expect. Mm -hmm. 
So my review is watch Relic, <laughs> but also watch The Father if if it is something that you're you know and these are not rare occurrences now. There there are a lot yeah. of films now that are trying to deal with this subject. So if you're even somewhat interested, I would say, you know, give it a go because you may well hit you exactly right and it may well resonate with you. It may you. do for someone what it didn't do for you. Yeah, and I, that's the thing is I came out of it just going, I wish that had hit me. I wish that had resonated with me, but it hasn't. But I'm sure it will with other people. Yeah. And judging from a lot of the reaction I've seen to it, it has. So, you know. Go for it. Films like that are deeply personal experiences. Yes. And that's not only just for the filmmaker, but also the people who watch as well. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, I know that I haven't got exactly the easiest palette in terms of filmmaking. Um, so let's talk about In the Heights. In the Heights. Um, I'll let you talk for a bit because I've not stopped for a while and I want to take some sips of water. I'm going to remain silent while you drink. Um, In the Heights is a musical. Um, it's written by Lin-Manuel Miranda. Um, it's directed by John M. Chu. Does that sound about right? Directed by John M. Chu. Um, screenplay by Quara Allegria Hudis, who did the book for the original. Music, Music and lyrics by, by Lin-Manuel Miranda, yeah. Nigga. Um, basically tells the story of Navi, who is a... Um, young guy come from Dominican Republic at the age of like eight, um, or is it maybe even younger than that? Um, might be eight. Comes over to America and it's him living in Washington, Washington Heights in New York, uh, which is this multicultural neighborhood um, where people come from all areas of the world and they all kind of live in this. Uh, and it's him basically dealing with this thing of being like, I want to go home. A home that he's never been to before, or at least can't remember. Mm-hmm. But he also feels that's his home. It's where his father had his um, bar, and he wants to go and take over his father's bar and, you know, go back. And it's dealing with the thing of being like, where do I belong in this world? Yeah. Do I belong in America, where I was born and raised, or at least was raised? Or do I belong in a place where I was born, but have no real familiar bonds with? Um, you know, who are my people? And this is looked at through a multiple different people, you know, kind of what are the what's the onus on you as somebody in that community? Um, like there's a character who um she went off to Stanford, I think it is. Um, and she was she was the one who got away. She was the one who is going to be the best of us, you know, because we don't get educations like that. And what is the pressure of being that person, not just for your family, but for your entire community. Yeah. Um, and what does it look like when you get there? How are you treated and how does that make you feel? Um, it, that's what it's talking about. It does it all through the guise of a musical, a proper stage musical as well. You know, it's very much kind of like everything is sung um, and the bits of speech are just there to interlink. Um I love this. Like I, I'm a musical fan. I had a great lot of fun with it. Um, I think it's very inventive at times, um, from a a um, visual point of view. Stuff like as simple as using like a drain as a as a record scratch to kind mm. of kickstart a song, and um, you've got people kind of like gliding up and down buildings as they sing and stuff, and it's really using kind of the visual language of cinema that you couldn't use on stage to really bring Washington Heights to life mm-hmm. um, and really makes that feel like this vibrant kind of character in itself. 
um and i had a i had a really good time like mm-hmm. from the first song all the way through and there's a song at the pool called Night Six Thousand that I really enjoyed, mm-hmm. um, just because it's kind of a real big kind of showpiece uh, thing. I think at times it loses. So they've linked this into the Dreamers program, which was in America. What there was problems with the Dreamers during the Trump regime, mm-hmm. um, and they bring that in. I don't think that was in the original. Yeah, I think it's had a couple of things that have been sort of tweaked into it over the course of its development. And I like the fact because it seem it fits seamlessly in there, but I do think it kind of gets dropped a little bit at times. Like there's a point where it's mentioned right near the beginning, and then it comes up right near the end, and like there's a whole bit in the middle where that kind of just it was almost like oh, we we're we're acknowledging this, but yeah. we're not going to do anything with it. And it does that a lot in this. Like, there's certain things that are brought up, they're dropped for long periods of time and then just picked up towards the end. Yeah. Um, as a film, I think it's about half hour too long, easily. Yeah. Um, you know, it runs for, what, two and a half hours? Yeah, two, yeah, 220-something, I think it is. Yeah. And, you know, musicals are long. Mm-hmm. That's just kind of what they are. But this one felt long as well at times. Like, it felt like it slowed down... Um, and I enjoyed my time with it. I just think actually you could have maybe snipped a couple of bits, um, mm. and it probably could have got a quicker, quicker beat. Yeah, um, I mean, my feelings on this are slightly different to yours. In that I'm not coming at it from a point of view where I'm a huge musical fan, and I think mm-hmm. this, I think you start in this place where you're already on a high with it because <laughs> I think you're much more receptive to that sort of thing, and I think that's fine. You know these are the differences that make this podcast interesting um and i think you're right you know some of the sequences are really um big and flamboyant and celebratory and the whole thing feels very celebratory um and i think that's refreshing to see a film particularly you know coming back to the cinema and coming back to normality eventually it kind of feels like these are the kind of films that I think there will be an appetite for mm. seeing. Um, or certainly, you would hope so. Um, and I think, yeah, the some of the numbers are very well put together. I think some of them are very well directed. I think, for me, it sometimes falls into those trappings of, of those stage musicals where I'm going... Uh, I mean, the thing is, there's nothing in here that necessarily surprises you. Yeah. Because if you've seen any musical in your life, you know exactly what's going to happen. You've seen any but that's film. not, you know, that's not a criticism that I can only level at one film. You know, this is something that, you know, The Greatest Showman had exactly the same problems mm-hmm. and many more, in my opinion. What? Shots fired. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I think it's kind of it has that sort of feel good mm. romp to it that I think is really refreshing to see. Um, particularly in a week where I've seen a lot of stuff that's sort of mm, downbeat. Yeah. But um, I I kind of I feel a little colder on it because I'm just not... I don't think I'm ever as sold on a musical as you ever are. And I think, for me, the stuff that didn't work for it didn't work more in my mm. eyes than it did in you. Basically, you know, I think that dragged it down for me, whereas for you, you kind of saw that and went, I'll brush over that because I'm having such a good time yeah. with it. And it is, you know... It is a big, fun musical. 
Mm. It is big and it is long, is what I would say. It does feel half an hour too baggy. Yeah. And I I, I wonder what it would be like to see this on stage in comparison to this, because I think there's a lot that would still translate well over, or that obviously has Mm. translated well over, and that they would retain. And I'd kind of be interested to see, okay, well, how does this actually work on stage more than... Yeah. More than how does it work on film? Because I don't... I don't know. I... The interesting thing is, when I'm in a theatre watching a musical, I'm much more willing to allow the contrivances of a musical. It's because you're worried that the actors can see you. <laughs> I, that, I, now, I will say that is 100% not true that I'm worried about that, because I've fallen asleep in a play in front of actors, and they could definitely see me. So that's not a worry for me where I'm like, oh, well, what if... I've, I mean, I've been bored to sleep by plays before, but I get what you mean in that there, there is this sort of element of you're in a live it. performance. You're kind. Of, I think you're more engaged anyway because it's, it feels like you're part of it almost. You're just worried there's going to be like a record scratching. You go, excuse me, uh, man in row E, seat four. Can you at least try and pay attention? But the record scratch is on a drainpipe. Uh, <laughs> That's one thing that um, I was disappointed in, um, and I think I spoke to you about. Oh this. yes, you did say is, this. Yeah. That so, like I said, visually they they do some stuff that's really visually interesting in yeah. this film. Um, they kind of go, okay, the trappings of theatre means you can't do this kind of stuff, so we're going to do it now in this. Um, and that record scratch on the um, manhole cover—that's a perfect example of just something that you—it's just a little kind of flavour to kind of a piece. Yeah. And they do it a couple of times, but they just don't do it enough. Yeah, it never like, feels like it's committed to throughout. And I'm like, really, you could go all out here and you could do some really interesting stuff. And when you do it, it's fantastic and I love it. But I notice it's not there all the time and that's yeah. a shame. Yeah, it's, it is interesting that I think I kind of picked up on that as just being, oh, maybe they just had the idea for one or two numbers yeah. where I was like, oh, okay, so they've thought of something to do here. But it's kind of like, oh, if you're doing it there, then you... There's nothing to stop you from doing it exactly. elsewhere. And yeah, you're right. I think it could have made more of its own mark in terms of the interpretation of that musical. But hey, you know, it's a, it's an interesting one because this year we're getting a bunch of musicals. Mm-hmm. And some were supposed to be released last year and then some were supposed to be released this year. But we've got, I think, another two in sort of August, September time. And then yeah. we've got obviously um, West Side Story down the line at Christmas. And it kind of feels like, that's, I mean, that's a lot of musicals for one year. And I just wonder, like, does it feel like this is a hangover from... But then again, these were all going into production before Greatest yeah, yeah. Showman came out. So it's not like that prompted... You know, Hamilton is obviously the thing that... And mm-hmm. this is obviously the precursor to Hamilton. This is what he was doing when he wrote Hamilton. Yeah. And it kind of feels like, okay, well, that's the jumping off point for all of the fact that they've done all these musicals recently. But does this maybe feel like it's now the end of that cycle? Maybe. Because I guess, like, there's only so many musicals you can sustain in a... Yeah, yeah. I don't know if the appetite is there for this many musicals. It's a bit like, imagine, all all of the Westerns came out in one year. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You've got to be like, oh, we've got to spread these out sooner or later. Um, Yeah, I mean, so for me, I'd say, it's a that'll do, Pig, but if you're into musicals, it's a would recommend. Because, you know, like you're saying... For someone like you who goes in with a natural predisposition to like those things and to enjoy that style of I filmmaking, had a good time. it's there. 
and it's there in spades. So, you know, go for it. Yes. Uh, Right. Last two things. Oh, my God. Short episode this week, guys. Never look at the time. It always makes you panic. I'm going to take my sweet-ass time with this. Hey, this is all on you. So, if this episode goes long, that's your fault. Uh, <laughs> I think it's both of our faults. Uh, In the Earth. So this is the latest film from Ben Wheatley. Um, most recently seen doing Rebecca last year on Netflix, mm-hmm. which was... You really didn't like. Fine, but I don't understand why it was made. Um yeah, bizarre. Anyway, this, uh, so written and directed by Ben Wheatley um, and made during the pandemic last year. Uh, so I went to a Q&A with Ben Wheatley for this and I didn't go with him, uh, <laughs> but there was a Q&A with Ben Wheatley at the screening I went to. And he was talking about the fact that when the pandemic hit last year, he sort of found himself panicking in his house and his family were kind of like, what's going on? And he was like, what happens when all the food runs out and everything goes wrong? Um, and he found himself sort of panicking and then sort of after a while settled himself and went, uh, I think everything will be fine. And it actually feels quite mundane now. Yeah. The fact that we've settled into this routine. And he sat down and he wrote this film and was able to secure some funding for it. But because of the process of the fact that they we were in lockdown, he had a much longer time to actually develop it mm-hmm. and the actual process of making the film lasted longer than a lot of the film. And then the the actual filming time was sort of shorter. So he realised that he had this window where production was going to open back up, but the big Netflix things that film, that take up all the crew, mm-hmm. aren't going to start back up because they're too big to start back up that quickly they have to go through various different processes to get back on the road. So he needed to make this quick so that he could actually get the crew he needed to make the film. Um, So it's a film that's set during a pandemic, which sort of goes to explain why they are, you know, wearing face masks and things like that. Um, And I think that seems to be, because it seems to be the entire reason for the fact that it was made during the pandemic it allows them to sort of say, oh, okay, so the reasons there's face masks is because there is a pandemic in this world as well. Um, We follow uh, Joel Fry's character, Martin, um, who comes to the woods to apparently to help in a study of um, agriculture, growing crops and how different soil and different environmental conditions can affect growing of crops. Um. It quickly turns out that there is an ulterior motive here and that he's actually searching for a colleague who has gone missing and hasn't been seen in months. Mm. And she's somewhere in the woods. Um, And then he goes on this sort of expedition to the woods with one of the local rangers who they then encounter Reese Shearsmith. Mm -hmm. Never a good thing. (laughs) <laughs> uh, so encounters Reed Shearsmith who sort of um, advises them that things have been different here and he's out living in the woods and you know he goes into town every so often to get things but it's rarer and rarer and he's trying to survive out here because he doesn't feel safe in you know mm-hmm. in this pandemic rid- riddled world and then things start going a bit Blair Witchy um, 
it's a really interesting um, film because it feels like a so it feels like a continuation of Ben Wheatley's folklore films. Yeah. So things uh, folk horror films like Kill List and A Field in England, where this kind of feels like the continuation of that conversation that he was having. And there is some uh, certainly, you know, the editing and the visuals are very psychedelic and very in the same way that Field in England sort of leaned into. It feels very full on mm. and it's an overwhelming film at times and it feels like it's a film that in the same way that i think sound of metal did for me it feels like a film that is utilizing everything in cinema together yeah. the, the score is phenomenal i really really like the clint mansell score um the cinematography is really interesting and it does a lot of different things with sort of strobe lights and um sort of very disconcerting sounds and screeching and you know uh really earthy sounds and it's really really full-on and if you've seen a full-on ben wheatley film you'll kind of know what to expect that isn't to say that it's just out and out sort of horror and psychedelic horror there are there, there is a sequence in this that alongside being sort of terrifying is maybe one of the funniest sequences I've seen in a long time in a film and really nails the mixture of comedy and horror. And I think it helps that a key component of that is Reese Shearsmith, who's obviously built his career yes. on that. Um, I think for anyone who is looking for... I mean, okay, look, if you're a Ben Wheatley fan, you've probably seen this film already. If you haven't, go and see it. You'll love it, I think. <laughs> Um, but if you're if you're someone who's looking for a sort of psychedelic horror movie, would recommend for people who don't like certain Ben Wheatley films, then <laughs> don't see this film. You know, it's it's one of those ones where it's sitting very high on my list. Yeah, but I guarantee it wouldn't be anywhere near as high on your list. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a difficult one because I think I really love that film, but I can understand that it is completely. I mean, it is very much a film, you yes. know. It's a lot. And how was the talk with Ben Wheatley, was it? Yeah, really interesting. I mean, Ben Wheatley is someone who I think I could listen to talk about, uh, listen to talking about films for hours because mm. I think he's really, his, he's got an enthusiasm for filmmaking that after, what, 12, 13 years of making features now, it hasn't ever waned. It doesn't yeah. seem like he still. He still almost feels like he's a kid in a candy shop in terms of his approach to filmmaking, and he's he's really engaged in it. You know, his next thing is the Meg Two, yeah. and this is a film that is completely the other end of the spectrum to the to the Meg Two. Mm-hmm. But f- try and find a filmmaker who is as excited about making this as he is about making the Meg Two, and I think you'll only find Ben Wheatley. Yeah. Because he's just that kind of person. But yeah, it was really interesting. And um, he's he's someone who is really committed to still maintaining a foot in that camp of independent filmmaking. And, you know, this film was made for a million dollars. And it's mm-hmm. like, it's incredible. He's going from this to probably his biggest budget movie. Yeah. And you're like, oh, okay. There's, <laughs> I mean, you know, have fun with it. And then maybe we'll be making Tomb Raider 2 at some point, but who knows. Mm. 
it's it's really interesting. But yeah, Ben Wheatley is someone that I really engage with on a. I get his style, yeah. and I think that's that's something that's important. I think if you do, then you'll love this. If you don't, probably won't be for you. I think this is less. So, for instance, the first Wheatley film I took you to was High Rise. Yes. And weirdly, I think that's one of his two most accessible films, that and Free Fire, because Free Fire is ostensibly just a gunfight movie. Yes. But a really good gunfight movie. Um, This is maybe one of his least accessible films. Okay. That's where I sit with it. Um, Finally, 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 nobody. I'm going to tell you now. Oh, so, yeah, I said... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'll tell you now. Tell me now. This is probably the most fun I've had in the cinema for a long time. Okay. I really enjoyed Nobody. Um, so this is um, an action movie um, based on, apparently based on an idea that sort of Bob Odenkirk had. Mm-hmm. So he, there's various different conflicting stories, and I can't really work out what the, what the genesis of the story was. But apparently Bob Odenkirk did have an experience where he felt like, oh, okay, there's something in this that I could channel myself into. Yeah. Uh, but it is directed by Ilya Naishullah, who did Hardcore Henry a few years ago. Okay. Did you ever watch that? No, because it, I saw the trailer, and the trailer made me dizzy, so I was like, yeah. I can't do this. Well, anyway, um, directed by him, uh, written by Derek Colstad, who is the creator of John Wick. Mm-hmm. Um, David Leach, one of the co-directors of John Wick, is a producer on this as well. Yeah. Um, and very much, you know, fits into that universe in terms of its very stylized and hyper-violent approach to mm-hmm. fight scenes. Um, so he plays... So Bob Odenkirk plays this sort of middle-aged guy called Hutch, who is, uh, I think he's an accountant at a sort of auto parts store, uh, yeah, auto yeah. parts warehouse by day. And then, you know, comes home and is you, you have this sort of very, really well done sort of montage of his weekly uh, mundanity, mm. basically. And then uh, a break-in happens. And these, these two uh, criminals break in and they steal a bit of cash. Nothing, you know, they don't, they don't take anything too valuable. But then he realizes they've stolen his daughter's kitty cat bracelet. And this pushes him over the edge. And he leaves the house and he goes out and he's determined to get revenge, it seems, or at least find this kitty cat bracelet. And from thence, the action arises. Yeah. It's so much fun. This film is just... I mean, I was sitting there thinking... the Because the, the trailer that I'd seen for it, I was like, oh, okay, it's kind of John Wicky. And a lot of films are trying to do that at the moment. And some pull it off and some don't. Yeah. But this really pulls it off. And I had an absolute blast with this film. I think Bob Odenkirk is channeling his best Bruce Willis. Okay. And I mean 80s Bruce Willis. Prime Bruce Willis. Not anything past 1990. But it kind of feels like he's channeling that kind of vibe of an action star from mm. the 80s. It, it, it feels like a film that is completely out of time because it feels like it's like a late 80s, early 90s action movie yeah, yeah. that's just been plonked straight into 2021 and just gone, there you are. There you go. Have that. Um, funny. Uh, the action sequences are really well done. I really enjoy the... Th- there is a good mixture of comedy. There's a good mixture of action. But also... 
there is this sort of weird gruffness to Bob Odenkirk's performance. I'm like, oh, I really like do the you, fact. Do you buy him in that kind of game? Yeah, I, I mean, I. This the thing is that I think Bob Odenkirk is someone I've been a fan of for a long time now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with his basis in things like Mr. Show, you kind of feel like, oh, well, you know he can do the comedy, can he do the drama? But then he does the drama in Breaking Bad and Better Call yeah. Saul, and you kind of feel like... Okay, so he's now at this point where he's done both for long enough now that he can mix both really well. And he does. And he, he sells the character in a way that I didn't necessarily expect. I I would watch a thousand nobodies. Well, there's a second one in the works, isn't there? Yeah, so, so there is a sequel apparently already in the works that's going to have some kind of visual link to the John Wick universe because the, the writer's like, I would believe that they probably yeah. fit in the same universe. Um, and there's some backstory explored in terms of what this guy used to do that allows him to be such a badass. Um, but it isn't ever really... It doesn't feel like it's dealt with in extraneous detail. It just gives you enough that... And there are, there's a very funny sort of running gag about what happens while he's trying to tell stories. Um, I really... Yeah, I really like this movie. I think it's... So, like we were speaking about within the Heights, that's like a really feel-good celebratory romp thing. Mm-hmm. This is the most fun I've had in the cinema. You know, it feels like it's lightweight, but it doesn't need to be heavy. Yeah, but it is so much fun, and I laughed like a drain throughout. And I really, really enjoyed awesome. this movie. Uh, so, yeah, I would recommend this as well. It's been a decent yeah. week. Yeah, um, a lot of stuff. Yeah, but don't even worry about it. It's all fine. You saw a lot of stuff this time. I'm tired. We even didn't watch Luca. Yeah, because we actually... That was a genuine thing where I kind of calculated and went, there's already too much. So guys, I could have reviewed another thing, mm-hmm. but I wasn't We could have reviewed The Ice Road as well, the new Liam Neeson action movie. Oh, wow. Which we can watch as well, I guess. But that's stuff for next time. Euros is still going to be going on at that point, I guess. Yeah, but less games now because we're getting into the knockout phases. So. Perfect. Okay, well, next time there's a fallow day... We'll watch Luca and the Ice Road. <laughs> Not a new film. Not the combined. They just push them together, so I only have to watch one thing. Uh, so, as always, you can find us on Facebook and on Twitter. Twitter, we're on Dinos- On Twitter, we're at Dinosaur Man Fifteen. Everywhere else, Dinosaur Man Podcast or just Dinosaur Man. Uh, joining you to the theme song this time. It was also di- uh, composed by Alan Silvestri. And once again, better than Avengers, apparently. <laughs> he, he did say that. Um, Maybe I will watch Manimal before next week. Um, Andy, you've been the host. Thank you. Alex, you've also been the host. Thank you. I've done a lot of talking. And guys, until next time. Uh, you know what? Everyone, can we make a pact now that we will all watch Manimal together? <laughs> Live stream of Manimal. We'll, watch, we'll do a watch-along party uh, Friday night, 8pm. All of us watching all episodes of Manimal back to back. Marathon it through the night. So bring your Red Bull and bring your... Hey, Red Bull, that's what you could turn into if you were sunburned. I'm the manimal now. (laughs) Yeah, okay. Uh, Bye, guys. (laughs)